Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 426. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview is with Donald James. Donald's an executive leader, communicator and author who led a 35-year career at NASA. His recent book, co-written with his brother Dennis, Manners Will Take You Where Brains and Money Won't, deals with an important topic, our manners, our civility. In this conversation, we discuss what it means to have manners, why knowing yourself and authenticity are seminal to having proper manners, how manners change culturally and contextually, how to develop good manners, and much more. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. Please do consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Donald James, wow. How much fun is this to have you on the show? Uh, you and I were connected by our mutual friend, Mua, who said, you need to have Donald James on your show. And uh, the more I got into it, the more and the more I met you, the more obvious and correct was he. In your own words, how would you like to describe yourself, Donald? Um, I am a passionate person about people and their life's journeys and what they're working on and what's important to them. And at this stage in my life, it's what role that I can play in helping people's journeys. Um, Biographically wise, I'm 64 years old. I'm an American. I'm a black American, married 32 years yesterday father of two children, 35 years with the space agency in the United States, uh, worked in education. Uh, My goal in our education program was to lead programs to inspire the next generation of explorers and discoverers and scientists and technologists. And um, I couldn't think of a better career to have. And at this stage, you know, my life is about giving including giving to myself, uh, but giving to others as much as I can. Um, so I'm equally delighted to be here. And when I we had a chance to meet earlier, I just knew you were someone very special and someone from whom I could learn a lot. And um, my only disappointment is that we're not sitting in the studio together. Well, we shall hopefully get a chance to rectify that thought. You know, what's funny, Donald, is um, I do themed dinner parties. And um, I have an upcoming dinner party whose theme is the trip. If there's two things that strike me about what you just said, first of all, you're about accompanying the journey. And two, you've worked for NASA. Talk about being or on a trip of extraordinary variety. It it is somehow I like I love to connect dots and it seems like we're we're destined to meet. Yes, I agree. I I believe that wholeheartedly. And um I'm really grateful to you that you chose to to want to even talk. And um I I'm gonna say that I'm probably gonna get a lot more <laughs> this than anybody else so um, forgive me for let us let us begin the journey all right so donald uh beginning of the year basically the same very day as my last book you published 
manners will take you where brains and money won't. So I loved your book. It was tremendously insightful, really um, far different than I expected when I set out and I started reading it. In your own words, let's say, how did you come across this idea of writing a book about manners? The line, manners will take you where brains and money won't, is something I learned from my mother growing up. Uh, she was a school teacher, and she always believed that no matter how smart you are, or how rich you are, or how anything else you are, if you don't have good manners, proper manners, as she might call it, you probably aren't going to get very far. And I think a lot of people can appreciate this. And usually the analogy that I use is there are a lot of smart people who are in prison, right? You know, Bernie Madoff wasn't stupid. He just was a criminal. And he ended up in prison and died in prison. There are a lot of wealthy people who are depressed. Sadly, many of them take their lives, right? Some of them have depression issues that are chemical in nature and things like that but you know their money didn't help them and so what my mother wanted to emphasize is the skill of manners is something that's worthy of working on and uh, I kind of took her adage and expanded it in my own thinking when I chose to write this book um, manners broadly speaking is really how we show up it's the totality of how we show up it's our speaking, it's our listening, it's our body language, it's our personalities, it's our karma, if you will, it's our essence. And these are difficult concepts to kind of get our hands around in terms of, well, how do I actually work on that and fix that and so we can have that conversation. But to me, it's um, everybody has manners. The question is, what kind of manners do you have, right? And so it's worthy of looking at and and having um, an inquiry about your own manner. Some people may not understand, for example, how come I'm not getting a promotion, or how come I'm not getting a job, or how come I'm not getting the boyfriend or girlfriend that I want? You know, I'm doing all the right things. Well, you might want to look at your manner. Maybe, maybe you may not be the other person. So, um, I wrote this book because I have a passion for supporting young people in their careers because I had a lot of support in my career and trajectory and I wanted to offer things that I've learned and what I experienced and invite people to take a look and try it on to see if it resonates and helps them um, and so I hope that it does um, because I think it makes a difference. And so that's, that's where that term comes from. It's from my mom. Well, I want to get to your mom in a bit, but um, what was interesting is that generally speaking, when you look at the word manners, you regard that as behaviors, if you will. And yeah. Do you have good manners or bad manners? When you go to the singular, it's about your way. Yes. Your manner. And that, for me, strikes me as a far more potent word. What is your manner? Yes. As opposed to what are your manners? Yes. That's a it's almost like one is happiness. Are you happy or who are you? Yes. Fabulous distinction. I, I love that distinction, Mentor. And I, I, I think if you look at 
your world through that lens, you can learn a lot. And you can learn a lot about what works and, and what doesn't work. And to me, it's important to remember that I don't want people to act a certain way to put on a manners act in order to get something or do something that they want. I actually want people to be more about who they really are authentically. Authentic presence is something that's very important to me. AP. AP. And authenticity is about honoring your true self while at the same time cultivating the skill of personal engagement, not only with other people, but with yourself and even with the planet, right? You know, so that it serves you and it serves, serves humanity in, in a way. And so I would like to think that most of us are about at the end of the day how do we advance the human condition and that and you know it depends on how we define that and what does that mean but uh, for me i start with manners and your manner of being i love that that's a great distinction yeah well so one of the things about the fact you really emphasize the role of your mom and and her seven, I think it was different. Uh, was it seven? <laughs> Correct me. Eight cardinal rules of life. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And um, and you you obviously were massively impacted by your mom. The, the the notion of how matters, and and I and I wanted to ask you whether you thought male female divide is is relevant in this discussion. And maybe if I put the context on that okay. one second, which is that there's an element of execution for men. I got to do something. And I find that in the more the yang, there's more, you know, you're, you, you're competitive. You want to push through. You want to be in the doing. Whereas the, the idea of the feminine can be more about being the how. And I wanted to see what you reacted and how you thought about that. My sense is that each of us may have a bit of either of those. You know, it's just worth observing and and seeing, you know, what what really shows up. Uh, for example, as a guy, if you are just paying attention to the dynamics, at least with other males or yourself, um, regardless of whether you label it male or female or masculine feminine just sort of look at you know where you're coming from you can learn a lot from that and decide whether or not that's a manner that's appropriate or something you want to do and and i've learned a lot usually from my mistakes um some of it has to do with your physical distance from other people and i've also you know learned some things that are very deeply personal that you know depending on who you're dealing with, it may not go over very well. So um, my, my invitation generally, Mentor, is to suggest that people be careful about labels, how, what you label on people. Because for a lot of people, there's, see, see <laughs> the fact that you and I are men, that's a label, but that has nothing to do with who we are as human beings it might it might inform some of our mm -hmm. 
judgments and our actual behaviors and things that we do. But I think it's not very useful because particularly when we start labeling a lot of other things, you know, oh, he's British or he's so American or he's you know, he's a Trump or exactly or white or black, then people have these images and conjure up things about people that may or may not be true. And I've been the victim of people labeling me because of what they see that is a disconnect from what they eventually learn about me as a human being. And I write about a couple of examples of this in the book. And so I'm not really sure how useful it is to dwell on, well, what's masculine or what's feminine or, you know, I mean, that's, it's an interesting academic exercise. Uh, but, you know, I, 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 I tend to look at it, you know, I don't say deeper than that, but I tend to look at it by trying to question my own understanding of a label that I might use, right? And, and it's, it's, it's subtle. It really is subtle. But it really is a manners issue, right? You know, when you engage with somebody and, you know, you start putting labels on them and then you start making judgments as a result of that. Now, the fact that a lot of men are, for example, are leaders of companies and organizations for which they might have subordinates who are females and then there's dynamic issues that happen in there chances are a lot of the labeling that goes on in terms of what's in people's heads about people tend to tend to get in their way right and 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 makes it difficult for uh, a real contribution to happen so for example when i was a senior leader at nasa one of the things i learned was that the fact that someone is quiet in a meeting doesn't necessarily mean that they have nothing to contribute. It just means that they're quieter than some other people. So I had to learn as a leader to make a point of asking people for their contributions or their thoughts, you know, the ones we labeled introverts, instead of writing them off and saying, oh, they're introverted, they're not interested, or whatever story I created about them. And what I learned was that most of the time, when I ask somebody, you know, what they're thinking is, I would get something brilliant. And I'm like, well, God, why didn't you just say something? Well, that's just not their nature. It's not their manner. So as a leader, you have to be aware of the possibility that what you labeled somebody is, let's say, an introvert. So, you know, she's not going to contribute. You know, she's a woman and women, you know, men are just being, you know, they like to talk a lot. They like to get in there and all that stuff. You have to you have to mitigate that. Right. And you have to. Rah, rah. Be, yeah, that's what inclusivity means to me when we talk about, you know, DNI, diversity and inclusion. When you include, you have to be proactive of including people's input about things in order to make better decisions and have better programs. So um, the labeling of things that starts in our head often can get us into trouble. Because more often than not, it's not right. I tell the story in the book about, you know, my innate prejudice about ball-headed white guys with tattoos. And I see that for, for all my life, I look at them, oh my God, they must be a neo-Nazi, right? They're dressed a certain way and they have tattoos, they don't have any hair. Well, the truth is, that might not be the case. In fact, when I test out a lot of my prejudice, I find out I'm as wrong as hell. Um, 
it is not fair to judge, you know, if I see 20 of them that really are neo-Nazis, it's not fair to judge the 21st one that way just because that was my experience. And why do I feel this way? Because I know people seeing the news about, you know, black people doing bad things and so they're fearful and they see another black guy like me so they're fearful so they run away from me and yet you know i'm the last person in the world they want to run away from they probably would rather run to me if they actually knew me so i'm a victim of that same prejudice that i've inflicted on others just because i chose to label them and that to me is a manners issue it's my manner my manner of observation all right so Donald, there's so many things in there I wanted to address, but let's just start with the easiest, which is you're walking to a door and beside you, there's a lady. I'm going to stereotype her and I'm going to say, she's a woman. I'm going to stereotype and say manners would be, well, I should open the door for her. How do you resolve that conundrum? Because what am I doing? Am I condescending by showing that I'm a stronger person able to open the door? Is that because I want to get something out of it because I want to flirt with this lady because she's attractive. And if I show her gentlemanliness, this is that those are stereotypes that are exactly the issue at some level. Right. That, 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 that are also, according to some, good manners. Yes. So, you know, it's a great question, and we can get really wrapped up in some of the, the details about what's right and what's not right, and things sort of evolve. Um, oftentimes, I'll just ask, may I get the door for you? Mm -hmm. I appreciate it when people ask me that. I've actually asked women. I said, would you mind getting the door for me because my hands are full? I don't assume right. that she's offended by that. Uh, I have rarely, to my memory, open a door for a woman or offer to do it and got a response that suggested like, you know, don't be. Who do you think you are? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you know what? If you get it wrong because they reacted wrong, then, you know, you can say, I, I apologize. I didn't mean to offend you and move on. And then just don't take it personally. Remember mama's rule. What is it? Number two, what others think of you is none of your business. What they think of you is none of your business. I, to me, it's a courtesy. And it's a courtesy that I have worked on making gender neutral. So whether it's a man or whether it's a kid or whether it's... Uh, so like, you know, if I'm sitting at a table and people come up to the table, typically in the kind of the olden days, if it was a woman, you would stand up and show respect. If it was a man, maybe not. Uh, for me, I, I will stand up regardless of who it is as a sign of respect that I want to look at somebody in the eye if I'm meeting them for the first time. That's what I just do. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what people make of it, but, you know, what others think of me is none of my business. It's their thoughts. I'm, and, and I have to continually examine my motivations, right? If, I'm, if I see a woman that I find attractive and I notice that I'm doing things to cultivate my interest in her, then that's really what's authentic. And so um, I, you have to examine your motivations and decide what's appropriate. I would caution in, in a workplace to be a little extra careful about those behaviors because in a work environment, 
there's things that, you know, may or may not be appropriate. And, you know, if your goal is to be, if, if, if you want to be taken somewhere, you know, manners will take you where brains and money won't, then pay attention to your manner because people might judge you in a way that says, you know, we're not sure he's a team player, so I'm not sure about that. And the problem is you'll never know directly. You know, you just find yourself without being invited to the club or getting on a team or whatever it is. So think about where you're coming from, you know. I mean, I'm not saying that I, I don't come from a certain place that may be inappropriate, but as long as you become aware of it, sometimes just naturally it tends to dissipate any uh, malfeasance that might come about it, right? Um, so the, the same could be said also, you know, for an older person. So you're helping somebody who's older. Yeah. And then in a workplace, there's the, let's say, obedience to the, the chef, the boss, which can include, or oh, let me listen to the boss. Let me be subservient to the boss. And to your point, as you were talking about with the introvert at your table, if you're the boss, you need to lean into that. Yeah. But at some level, we have culturally, whether it's in an organization, respect of the senior person who's a colonel or general or CEO, that's part of the Western culture. And then maybe in the Eastern culture, a little bit more about age and, and the, there's a hierarchy of, of things. How about manners and culture? What, how, what's your observation after you know, 64 years, you've seen a lot and, yeah. you know, cos cosmonauts and astronauts together. Yeah. Talk to me about the manners at an international level. Well, in the early days of the space station with the Russian cosmonauts on board, there were a lot of reports of, of misogyny or sexist things. And, and, and I'm not seeing this third hand. I've talked to, I have several friends who are female astronauts who I've had this conversation with. You know, and I asked them, well, how did you handle that? I mean, I know people, you don't want to have an international incident, but I mean, you also have your boundaries. And, and so some of them chose to joke about it. Others chose to, you know, make clear their boundaries. And more often than not, the offending person, you know, woke up as a result of that. And so over time, it got a little bit better, you know. But, you know, the women <laughs> who are the astronauts are not stupid they know that a lot of the older astronaut guys came out of military tradition who were acculturated about their relationship with women so they were not unprepared and that's really one of my messages is that don't go into a situation unprepared i'm not saying that you're going to like it or you can change it but don't be ignorant of it when i walk into a meeting and I'm the only black person in there, I am not ignorant of that fact. I don't necessarily have to do anything about it, but I have to be prepared because sometimes I'm going to get comments that I know are, are, are not comments that will be made if I were a white person. It just happens. I've had it. I have it all my career. Of course. So if I want to protect myself from being offended or just having a reaction that looks like, you know, I'm one of those old sensitive types, I have to walk into a meeting, know that I'm going to get certain kinds of things and, you know, and decide how I'm going to deal with it. And you have to decide where your own red lines are. 
And the female astronauts had to do that as well. Obviously, certain things like touching and other things like that are completely off the table. So it's a constant effort to to understand and I and I still learn and I'm learning about in other cultures you know you you have to at least be aware that in other cultures certain things that you took for granted may not be the case in a different culture I mean I literally remember I, I lived in Kenya for a couple of years and I remember being on a trip and I was with a um, several people including a, a female graduate student from Yale she was I think an anthropology student or something and we were in a village and one of the young men pulled me aside and asked me about how many women would I like to have in exchange for the woman from Yale he wanted to make a trade uh-oh and I it took me about a minute to figure out how do I even react to that and so I mean I was well I mean Chris, I, was, I, I would have understood the question if it were an interesting woman from Harvard as opposed to Yale my alma mater is Yale so <laughs> well my my I never forgot it because my dad is a Yaley and so I told him this story later and he got a big kick out of it but I but, I remember okay. telling the guy I said we don't do that <laughs> and i i was it was my first like real um what do you call it like coming of age kind of a thing where i realized that depending on the culture you're in this notion of exchanging people like property was is viewed differently i mean he was sincere but he also took my response you know he's i said no man we we in america we don't <laughs> we don't trade our women <laughs> so i i just so the the point is is that it's a continually learning experience and i've made mistakes i i studied at cambridge university one summer and i remember being told when i first got there that unless you are a professor a person of a certain stature you're not allowed to walk on the grass in the quad i was we were i was studying at selwyn college at cambridge and i didn't take kindly to that it's like who are these people telling me that i can't walk on the grass you know am i some kind of a second rate person and i remember one day i was with a group of kids and i decided that i was not going to be I was going to be defiant and I sat down on the grass right on the edge my feet were on the sidewalk my butt was on the grass and sure enough not long long after that several people came up to me who were part of the leadership and they were very polite but they made it very clear I may not sit on the grass because I don't have the right stature and all the Cambridge students who were actually from the UK, we were an international group. They were sitting in the pub looking at the window, just laughing at me getting busted like this. And I, I look back at that experience and I'm like, what an arrogant asshole. <laughs> it's like, you know, so it's a version of when in Rome, you know, and it's like, do I really care? Did I really care that I could or could not stand on their grass? It was this whole, you know, notion about being told what I can and can't do, which is 
you know, a very American thing, right, which we've seen a lot recently. And so I, I just, you know, I use that experience as a reminder that, um, you know, what really matters, mentor, you know, what, what, what's really important? And, you know, if I sat on the grass or not, wasn't going to kill me. And it was a sign of disrespect to not respect their rules, right? And so, traditions. And traditions. And maybe there's something I could learn from that. And so, anyway, that, like I said, I learned a lot from my mistakes and the bad things that I've done. But uh, I don't know if I answered your question, brother, but I was thinking about those things. I love it. I love it. You know, um, first of all, I, you said a couple of times the word matters. And I can only make the relationship between manners and matters. You exchange the consonant, consonant and you have the same thing. Your manners matter. They and, do. And it, it is what matters. And, and of course, in your situation, it, there's an element of, you know, me, I matter. And what is my place in the big scheme of things? And of course, does 300 years or 400 years of tradition matter? or not, and what attribution you want to make of that with regard to your ego. There's a little phrase you wrote in your in, in the book. Um, well, actually, it was, it was from Congressman uh, Eric Sol Swalwell. He says, Donald you and your brother, Dennis, argue here that manners are much more than etiquette, politeness, civility, and protocol. Rather, they write, manners are the authentic and genuine way in which one shows up in the world for good, a foundation of fulfillment and meaning for them manners are a moral dimension and a virtue yeah i thought that was absolutely yeah. powerful yes i believe that i believe there is right or wrong i believe there is good and bad we can argue and debate about where the lines are but um you know let me let me just let me just say this about that I was struck when I read, um, I read the book by Isabel Wilkerson. She she wrote the Warmth of Other Sons about the Great Migration of Black People post Jim Crow, and uh, or post Civil War, and then kind of during Jim Crow. And then she wrote another book, um, named escapes me right at the moment, but it was about caste. It was called Caste, C A S T E. One of the things that struck me was, it was a very difficult book for me to read because she talks a lot about the lynching of black people for, you know, no reason at all. I mean, they weren't convicted of a crime or anything. And um, there were several cases when they were, the mob was in the process of lynching the person, you know, the people that were actually doing the deed in their personal interaction with the person who was getting lynched in some cases was very polite you know they called them sir people being nice and people being polite uh if it's done in a in an immoral context i think needs to be examined so that i'm just trying to make the point that that manner and manners is more than just politeness and i mean there's there's you know, very wealthy people in the world who are the nicest people in the world who who do things that are probably not good, right? But they're not evil people. Um, I mean, so I, I don't, I don't want to, 
you know, overplay this, but I, that, that was the point I was trying to make because she talked about people who did really dastardly things to other people, but yet in their interaction, you know, they were, they were polite. So I, I just want people to think that manners is not about a set of rules that you have. It's not like, you know, how you're trained to interact with the queen, right? You know, that, that is a protocol and an etiquette issue that is very, very important, right? You got to know what to do, what not to do, because it's the queen. And I, I applaud that. That's great. Manners is more than that. It includes that stuff, but but it's more than all that. Well, um, you know, to the point of, as as the quote from the congressman is about ethics, good and bad, it, it, it summons the question, are ethics international at some level? Because... Well, we have protocols, you know, how you deal with the queen, how you deal with the emperor, how you deal with the president, you know, all of these different methods and, and, and traditions, actually, which may be good, may be bad. You know, you should sit on or not the, the square that's perfectly cut. You're not, you aren't allowed, others are. These are traditions. And so at some level, whether it's right or wrong, it's what it is. Yes. And then the question is, is that okay? Yeah. So I think the okayness question ought to be subject to examination and, and looked at. You know, I can imagine some cultures who feel very strongly that women should not be educated. And that's <laughs> deeply rooted in their traditions and history. My position is that that's not okay. And I would like a forum not to attack the underlying religion or beliefs that that caused that but to say i don't know that we that that's good you know um i um i'm trying to think of a personal example where that came to being um i think it was in israel the first time i went to israel and i was it, it was a business trip but i had split it between business and not business and I remember going to the Western Wall. Now at the time, they still divided men and women, but it wasn't apparently as stark as it was before. But there was, off to the left, there was this room where, you know, religious Jews were studying. It was like a library in there. And our tour guide said, um, well, Donald, if you want to go in that room, you can, but only men can go in there. And so my wife couldn't go. And I remember pausing, wondering whether or not I felt okay with that. But my curiosity just got to me, so I went. But I just thought it was odd. And so that's with, me. Presumably so with a look at your wife saying, hmm. No, she didn't care. See, my wife is the Jewish one in the family. <laughs> And so she's like all for the traditions and protocols. But that was another example of sitting down on the square in Selwyn College, right? Mm -hmm. And so, so, you know, who am I to question their traditions and cultures? And, and I see other cultures and traditions where, you know, whether it's the Indian caste system or whether it's, you know, people in Afghanistan that, you know, kill girls because they had the audacity to want to go to school you know where where can we have a conversation about that i think that's an ethics thing that's a morality thing and it's an international thing and so um 
I, I don't know. I think it's a slippery slope if we just say laissez-faire to a lot of that because of what damage it could do ultimately. Uh, I, you know, there is the International Commission on Human Rights. I've looked at the Declaration of Human Rights, and there's a lot in there that would say this is how the international community sees the decency of human interaction in the world. And yet what we notice is the reality is a lot of that doesn't happen. So where can we question this and how can we evolve so that uh, we can become better if that's what this better standard is? So one of the things, I, and, I, and I wrote about your book in a recent blog post, I, I wrote, I come across the book about manners and I end up in chapter two, it's all about knowing who you are. I, I was completely blown away by that relationship. And, and as you know, my last book is all about being yourself as a leader. Yeah. It's like, how, how many ways are there to Rome? Rome being, it's all about knowing yourself. And I want to just uh, refer to this piece where you talk about how there are three types of you. Yeah, That's the way I took it. Yeah. There is the there is the authentic you, who you are. Yeah. There is the the you that someone else sees. And then yeah. there's the there's the you that you think someone else sees and experiences. Yeah. I loved that breakdown and and how you have to be kind of meta and that ability to sort of step out of your ego, the initial you in order to be able to countenance the other use yes yes it's very instructive um because it 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 helps you see yourself in ways you hadn't seen i, I did a training class once where we had to do this i've done a lot of training and they all these names you know myers briggs disc hogan all these things i'm a training junkie right you know and um there was this one particular one where you had to ask different constituents to answer questions about yourself and you had to answer them to then you had to get your peers and then your customers and all this kind of stuff. And then they gave you all this data and part of the data was bifurcated between things that they see about you that are good that you can build on and things that they see that aren't so good that you need to work on kind of thing. And I get the results back and I start reading and there's lots of answers, right? There's a lot of people and it was all the challenges and it's like, you know, Donald needs to learn this and do this. And I, I read through like four or five of them and mentor, I was just becoming depressed. I was like, oh my God, what happened? And I realized that they gave me all the bad stuff first, of which there were about 12 answers. And then after that was all the great stuff of which there was about 50 answers. So by the time I finished, I practically walked on water. And so the lesson that I got out of that was how my ego got so plugged in to all of the needs improvement stuff. And I thought that was the universe of the response. And so that was really the, so, so 
I mean, I remember some of the feedback. I think I even still have that somewhere. I remember some of the feedback. But the lesson was how much I got plugged in about what other people thought of me to the point where I internalized that and thought I was just a shithead. Because I never got to, you know, the stuff where they said, you know, how amazing I was. So I realized how attached I got. This is kind of a Buddhist thing, right? Buddhists talk about the source of all suffering is your attachments, right? So I got attached. I realized how much how attached I got to external observations, and then further, I was attached to my interpretation of those external observations which is really the third, like what I think other people think, right? So it turns out that it's all about the committee in my head having a tea party up there about what other people think and what I think other people think and all that stuff that I realized absolutely did me no good at all. And so that's what I learned about myself. So that's why I call the chapter Know Thyself. So what I learned about myself is I am attached to external validation or invalidation and the good the good news is is that it doesn't necessarily there's not like a switch where i switch it off i still get attached to that the difference mentor is now i know better now i know i know that about myself i know that about myself so if somebody says you know you know, like my dad told me one time, I write about this in the book, and the only time I remember my father disciplining me is that we were in Greece and we were doing something, and I was running my mouth at a luggage store, getting a new piece of luggage, and he pulled me outside and said, Don, you've got a big mouth. You need to learn how to control it. The only time I remember my dad, my dad never spanked me. He never yelled, never did anything. My parents were divorced, but when I was around him, he never really disciplined, but that was one time he did. So you know the difference between now and then? I still have a big mouth and I still talk a lot, but I know better. And if I need to deploy the not talking part of Donald because I know how it could impact an environment, I can do that. At the time, I was un unaware. It's that, that very famous uh, construct that we learn about. There's the things that you know. There's the things that you don't know. But you know that you don't know them, right? Like, I, I know that I don't know astrophysics. But then there's a whole domain called the what you don't know that you don't know. And I didn't know that I didn't know that I had a big mouth and that it could cause me problems. But see, now I know better because my yeah. dad told me. So it was the wake-up call. Yeah. It's lovely and, and rather meta. At the same time, so you have this notion of the ego that we've discussed a few times. And then reality is we live in a community and at some level manners, I feel if it's culture or manners are the glue of a community. And yes. so you need to understand that others are viewing you because your brand is what others say of you. Yeah. So as much as you might not want to think about what others are thinking about you, at some level, it's entirely relevant in community. Yeah, I, you know, if you're the person, if you're the kind of person that that 
has a purpose called, I want to make a difference, you know, in my community and in my family and in my life. If, if your narrative about that is what I'm doing is good and I'm going to keep doing it, but then the external observation is different, then you need to know that. That's why I wrote a chapter called Who is on Your Team, right? You need to invite people into your life to say, Donald, like my dad did, you got a big mouth. Donald, you, did you realize you cut that person off in the team meeting? And this person's the kind of person that's very sensitive about that. You might want to think about that. It, it, and, you know, I, I've seen this a lot. And so it takes courage sometimes to have somebody close to you to tell you the truth as they see it. Remember I talked about the photograph, <laughs> right? You know, I took my shirt off and I look at the picture. And I'm like, oh my God, what is that? And I see myself every day. I walk in and out of the shower. I'm in the bathroom. I don't think twice of it. Then all of a sudden I see a photograph of my body and I freak out because we have an external source looking at you. So this is what a team does. It's an external source that you've cultivated and you have a trusting relationship because they know you wanna grow, they know you wanna make a difference and they need to be able to tell you what you're doing is not working. You may wanna take a look at that. That you okay. need to pay attention to. The fact that somebody has an opinion about me like, you know, he's, you know, he thinks highly, you know, who cares, so what? they do it's but an input yeah it's it, it's what they thinking it's like i if i most leaders that i'm aware of and i would you you have a lot of expertise in about leadership so i'd be really interested in your thought i think and i haven't asked a lot of leaders this i think a lot of good leaders don't spend a lot of time worrying about what other people think about them as a person all right, all right so i the, the thing that is an interesting power or a bridge between those two thoughts is that I think that most leaders are poor at leader. And the reason is because they don't actually know how to listen. Yeah. 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 If and there's one skill, if there's yeah. one skill that is true, truly for me underpins manners. Yeah. Is the ability to listen. Apps here, 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 and I, I have different categories of listening. You know, there's hearing. My children are great at hearing. I can say something while they're texting and doing something else, and I say, "You guys aren't hearing." Oh, that I heard, and they can repeat verbatim what I said. Then there's listening, where they're kind of paying attention to you, and you kind of think they are, and they might be able to regurgitate. Then there's the so-called active listening where there's a practice of being able to pause and then reflect back to the person. So mentor, what I hear you're saying is most leaders aren't really good listeners and you nod your head and all that stuff. I take it one step further. I think there's something called presence listening. Presence listening. I don't mean presence like you get on Christmas Day. I'm talking about the kind of listening that you get from Mother Teresa or the Dalai Lama, where the whole body, whole karma, the whole mind is with you in the moment. You're not distracted. You're not planning on what you're saying. Your body language, 
is a part of that. And that's what I'm working on. I am nowhere near where I think I need to be. And I believe presence listening is the secret sauce. I couldn't agree with you more. I love it. Um, I'm going to note down presence listening and, um, and see what how that resonates with um, a few of my other friends who really talk about this. I want to talk in the last little section, I want to talk to you about time. So I, as I looked at the eight different rules that your mom gave you, two of them have time as a central component. The first one, make peace with your past so it won't screw up the present. And the third one is, Time heals almost everything. Give it time. And so my, you talk about how you need to make sure you're good with your past in order to be present at some level. It also feels like manners take time. And if alongside the absence of active or presence listening, that's one problem. The other one is we don't even have the time have manners. Talk to me about how that resonates for you. I like the way you put that. I think that's, um, I'd like to explore that a little bit. So my, my fundamental belief is that we all have manners. The question is, how would you characterize them? Do we even notice them? And I talked about how I've, it's been brought to my attention, my manner, <laughs> right? Some good, not good, things I can learn from, things that I can take it or leave it. Uh, if, uh, you know, our manner can be, and I think is, clouded by events that happened to us in the past. If you are unaware of that connection, then I think that could be a problem. I'm not an expert in psychology or counseling or anything like that. I suspect that's why many people enter into bad relationships that they repeat themselves. They're it's a form of wiring. Yeah. And so if you had a relationship where it didn't go very well and you were hurt, um, then it's going to inform, I believe, how you are, how your manner is in a future relationship. So, for example, I was, um, I know that I grew up having what I would label as abandonment issues, and I think it had to do with my parents' divorce and and I didn't have the capacity to understand that or even explain that. It's only through the benefit of hindsight that I look at this. Because what I notice is that when I began to enter into my relationship with my current partner, you know, I was very resistant. And I and I when I looked at it in hindsight, I think that resistance had to do with fear of abandonment. That I I didn't want to have that happen again. So my manner wasn't trusting and open and and, and, you know, and welcoming, uh, fortunately for us, and now it's been 32 years, um, I, I did grow past that. 
so I think it's just something worth worth looking at. Um, so I, I think the point that I get out of that particular cardinal rule is you might have to actively work on making peace with your past. You can't change it, but if you were hurt in the past, if you had a if you had something bad happen to you or even something great happening to you is to get to a point where you're kind of complete with it. I, I tell the story of the man that I knew at NASA who didn't want to enter, I was in public affairs and he didn't want to interview a journalist. And, and I said, why? And he went on to tell me about how he did an interview once and the journalist got it all wrong and made him look bad. And, you know, he went on and on. And I said, wow, that's amazing. I said, when did this happen? It was 30 years ago. 30 years ago. <laughs> 30 years ago, he felt burned by a journalist. And he never came to terms with that or made peace with it. And so he didn't want to interview people, which means that we weren't able to get what he could talk about out into the public. That's kind of a, a NASA example of something I was talking about. So, uh, and then the other one um, about time healing things. I, you know, I, I'm, and that I'm just reminded of the, what is it? I think it's a proverb. I don't know if it's Confucius or not that says relationships are like a China vase. Once broken, they can be healed, but the cracks will always be there. And yeah, and that's to be appreciated. I think you write yeah. about the fact that they keep the cracks, and and that's part of the journey. That's part of our scar tissue. That's who we are. That's our fabric. Yeah, yeah. And you can use that fabric to strengthen you, or it can use you to weaken you. Is what I believe, right? And what I mean by the latter is that if you had a relationship and it broke and, you know, then you healed it, then you are always mistrustful. You're always, well, he did that to me before, so I don't know. Or that teacher was mean to me, you know, two years ago, so I'm going to be careful about that or, you know, whatever the issue is. Um, it's just worthy of questioning whether it's serving you or not. And if it serves you favorably, it's, you know, what can you grow and learn from that? You know, um, my tactic is, and this is sort of what I call one of my pro tips. I find it useful that if things screw up or go wrong, it's just helpful for me to just take complete responsibility for that. You know, like we had a challenge at the beginning of this, getting the sound to work. And I'm thinking, what did I do to create that? I didn't say it was your fault. You know, what did I do? How did I make that happen? It gives me power to be able to say that. I mean, the reality is it may not have been something that I could have controlled, but at least I can sort of own it and say, let's, you know, let's take responsibility for it. So yeah, those are two interesting components. And, um, you know, and manners do take, it's not a light switch. It takes a, a lot of cultivation and a lot of work and, but just a lot of awareness, just being aware, just being aware. And at some level, I, I feel uh, an element of courage, A, to, to own, to take responsibility, and also to know thyself, including warts, imperfections. Yeah. And the bad side. Yeah. 
Donald, it's been a true pleasure to have you. I, I've adored this conversation. Um, who knew that manners would actually just an opening to understand who you are? And um, it's been a pleasure to get to know you a little bit better along the way. Donald, how can anybody follow you, get your book, of course? Anything Thank else you. that you'd like to know? Uh, the book is available on Amazon or wherever you find your uh, local books. Uh, I do have a website that talks about the book and how to get at it. And the website is just my full name, first, middle, and last name, DonaldGregoryJames.com. DonaldGregoryJames.com. No, no weird spellings. They're just the um, way they are. Donald, like... Donald Duck, <laughs> Gregory, like Gregory Peck, I guess, and James, like King James. I don't know. Uh, Donald Gregory beautiful. James. I love it. I love it. And uh, there's a place in there where you can uh, reach out to me and write me. I answer all emails. And um, uh, the email address, I try to make it memorable, is mannerswilltakeyou at gmail.com. So if you just remember that part of the book, mannerswilltakeyou at gmail.com. Uh, I answer to that, and um, I love speaking to groups. I love speaking to organizations. Uh, if you're a school group or nonprofit or whatever, uh, um, I'm happy to do it. No charge, anytime, any place. And um, uh, so this is a important work um, to, uh, in, you know, help advance the human condition. You know how we love it how we engage each other so uh, well, i have somebody already i want to send this to so thank you thank so you. much donald you're welcome and i'm grateful for this opportunity and I, I hope it's more to come thanks for having listened to this recording of the minter dialogue show you'll find the show notes and other blog posts on minterdial.com if you enjoyed the show please head over to itunes to give a rating and review and to finish Here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. challenge so life's not incomplete what's wrong with challenge 
best-known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel.